So let me invite you to open uh, the scriptures with me this morning to uh, the New Testament book of, of Revelation. What a good book. What a challenging book. What, a, what an encouraging book for believers, though. And I don't know what your background is. I don't know what your exposure is to uh, this portion of God's Word, but this is a apocalyptic writing. Uh, it was a popular genre um, uh, before the time of Christ, before Christ came on the scene, and then even after uh, the time where Christ's uh, ministry was on earth among Jews. It was written for particular purposes. It was written to encourage, to challenge. It was written with uh, imagery and, and symbolism meant to convey that God is sovereign, that He is good, that He is in control, that He has all of this in His hands. But I think, uh, and as I've reflected on this a bit, I, I think that this particular book, this particular part of God's Word, uh, is particularly susceptible uh, to a couple common disservices in the church. And so I want to I speak to those briefly as we uh, begin and before we uh, read our portion of Scripture for today. First, uh, for many folks, for many readers and preachers and teachers, for many believers, uh, it's ignored altogether because it's simply too strange. And it is strange. It's too difficult. It's, 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 it's too, uh, too, too challenging to grasp. Or, or how do we grasp it? How can we navigate this portion of God's Word? And so for many folks, it's ignored altogether. Um, or it's ignored because whichever particular approach that one takes to interpreting the end times... Uh, can be a bit divisive. And so for many, they simply ignore it. In other words, uh, the particulars of Revelation provide a portion of Scripture on which Christian interpreters have, will, and will continue to disagree. And as a result, it's often ignored. So that's the first disservice, is to simply dismiss it altogether. It's, It's not worth navigating. But the other disservice is the other end of the spectrum, not Not a hesitancy to wade into the waters of Revelation, but uh, at times a sensationalized approach to the book that rather quickly attempts to identify and to connect descriptions and symbols of Revelation with current events, with events of our day in an attempt to determine where we stand in God's sovereign timetable and discern what's going to happen next. And so folks, with this particular approach can become, not always, but it can become a bit borderline obsessive with certain passages of Revelation. Certainly, we want to dive into the text. We want to consume the text. We want the Word of God to speak. We don't want to ignore any of it. Scriptures call us to, to read and to teach and to preach and to digest the whole counsel of God. And so that's our aim in reading this portion of God's Word. I want you to know this morning, I'm not really interested in either one of those. I'm interested in hearing from the Lord. I'm interested in the Bible speaking. I'm interested in coming to the text. And in order to do that, we need to humbly come to the text and ask the Spirit of God to teach us. Ask the Lord to confront us and correct us and challenge us and shape us according to His Word. And that is His role. We need to to invite Him in. To invite Him to lead us. This is His Word. We want Him to direct our paths. We want Him to teach us. We want Him to help us understand and apply the truth of His Word. But even so, there is a responsibility that lies on us. Come to the text, eager to learn. We come to the text uh, honoring certain principles of interpretation, and one of those principles is that we need to know the context. 
And so when we come to any portion of God's Word, we don't simply extrapolate a verse here or there. We want to know the context that a particular passage was originally written into. And in this case, the context is this, that it's about A.D. 95, and the Roman Empire is the dominant power. Domitian, considered a, a cruel and greedy tyrant, is king. And under his reign in the Roman Empire, those who are devoted to Rome and her leader and her gods are handsomely rewarded. But those who claim allegiance to another city or another king or another god risk repercussions. And as you know, followers of Jesus Christ claim allegiance to another city, another king, and the only God. The heavenly throne room scene of chapters 4 and 5 is... It's intentionally put where it is just prior to chapter 6 that we'll jump into today. And so one thing that's helpful for us in considering how we're to interpret this portion of God's Word and really most portions of the New Testament is that these books or these letters, particularly the epistles and the book of Revelation, would have been read all at once in a worship setting. And so what comes before and after matters, it sets the stage for, for what comes next when it comes to reading and interpreting and applying and that is true here. So Revelations chapter 4 and 5 describe a heavenly throne room scene that assures Christians that devotion, faithfulness to God, will be rewarded. It will be rewarded. Maybe not now, but it will be rewarded in due time. In the words of one theologian, there is an obvious gap between this reality as John's heavenly vision describes it and how the existence of the first century church experienced it. And how can this glorious vision of heaven around the throne of God ever materialize? That's the question. No doubt must be brought to the text, must be wrestled with through the text. And as we peered into that heavenly throne room scene the last couple of Sundays, uh, we noted that Jesus, the ultimate king, the king of all kings, the one who reigns on high, is also... Our sacrificial lamb. He conquered. And he conquered by way of suffering. He conquered through the cross. He paid it all that we might be saved. Through Jesus, salvation and eternal life are available, but they are not fully realized here. Not in this life. This world is not our home. It is filled with pain and hardship. It's filled with suffering and persecution. But the ultimate king is still reigning. And he is moving history towards the fulfillment of his plans. And so with that information, that overview, that background, let's look at God's word. Would you join me standing for the reading of God's word? We're in Revelation chapter 6 this morning. We'll be in it for the duration of our time. We'll read all the chapter, but... I'm going to begin now by just reading the first eight verses. John says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the the third living creature say, Come. 
I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we come to your word this morning, desiring to hear from you. Or to be led, to be corrected, to be instructed, to be shaped, to be challenged and encouraged by your word. So, Lord, do so this morning by the presence and power of your spirit. It's in the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. These eight verses here, Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, describe uh, the first four seals on God's scroll were mentioned back in Revelation chapter 5. And so remember that heavenly throne room scene uh, where the one sitting on the throne, God, has a scroll in his hand. It's sealed up with seven seals uh, guarding its content. Uh, only the right person, only one who is worthy can open the scroll. No one is found worthy initially. And so John weeps. And then one of, uh, one of the elders in heaven says, No, look, here's someone who can open the scroll. The, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he looks and he sees the sacrificial lamb of God, Jesus the Christ, who looking, looking as if he's been slain, he's standing at the center of the throne. He can open the seal. He can open the scrolls. And the scroll uh, contains God's purposes. His purposes for history. His revelation. We said the rest of the story. Only Christ Jesus can open it. Only the lamb can open it. But before it can be opened... The seals must first be opened. These four seals reveal four horses, four riders, representing conquest, war, famine, and disease. These four representations of of evil are often related. We know this, that someone is bent on conquest and so they go out in battle and war breaks out and lives are lost. Often following war is destruction of a land and famine results. Closely following this is oftentimes disease and the spread of disease. See, one leading to the next. And this cycle of judgment has repeated itself numerous times throughout human history. We've seen things like this on some scale and they do not appear to be diminishing. You know, we, we may live in the modern world, but we still live in an evil world. And all four of these portray death. I think recalling God's word, God's words to Adam in the garden. Adam, you may eat of any tree in the garden, but don't eat of this tree, because the day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Reminder of sin and judgment. A reminder that God is holy, but humanity is sinful. God is judging the wicked. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Creation is cursed. The earth is in turmoil. The world is broken. Because God's stewards of the world chose rebellion against Him. We chose sin. And ever since the first humans chose sin, suffering 
became commonplace in the world. Sin and suffering abound. Sin and suffering abound. I don't think I have to convince you of this. Many of you have or are experiencing this. Many of you have lost loved ones. You've lost children or spouses. You've lost friends. A number of you have risked your lives in battle fighting for your country. Seen warfare firsthand. Sometime or another, most of you have been without a job or someone in your family has. Some of you have faced terminal illness or a life-threatening infection. You are well aware of tragic automobile accidents, months of chemotherapy and mass shootings. It doesn't take a Christian to know the world is full of sin and suffering. Just turn on the news. You know this. And I don't think, and this is my reading of this, I don't, I don't think John is describing here some future period of worldwide crisis. I'm not convinced that the Bible suggests that Christians are to amass stockpiles in preparation for future turmoil. That's not what's at stake here, friends. This sounds quite a lot like the present. Perhaps not for you. Maybe not for me. But you don't have to look far or wide to know that human suffering is pervasive. World wars, murderous dictators with mass concentration camps, cancer, malaria, and AIDS, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, and tsunamis, dementia, Alzheimer's, orphans, and nuclear threats, the world's a mess, sin abounds, suffering follows, but the text declares, the Bible declares, creation shouts, God is still God. God is still God. Sin and suffering abound, yet God is sovereign over suffering. God is sovereign over suffering. Herein lies the tension of our faith. Evil, sin, and suffering run wild. But if God is good and if he is strong, why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't he stop it? When will the Almighty intervene? And certainly there have been many attempts to identify who these various riders of these four horses are. But I think attempts to identify the four riders risks missing the point. Whoever they are. Their actions are not beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. You see, like the Assyrians in Isaiah's day, or like the Babylonians in Jeremiah's uh, time, these writers are wicked agents of God's judgment. Given permission. They're given permission, verses 2 and 4, by the Lamb. Used by God for a time, but not immune themselves from His coming judgment. So how do we know? How do John's listeners know that God is still sovereign over their suffering and that he will soon do something about it? Well, we know because he says so. Because he says so and he's always faithful to his word. How does he say so? Let's continue our text. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When the Lamb opened the fifth seal, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Here's the truth. The Bible's clear on this. God's people suffer. God's people suffer. Those people are certainly not immune to suffering, not here. Christ calls us out of the world only to send us back into the world as salt and light. And in this world, you will have trouble. 
Jesus said. You will face trouble and tribulation, hardship and suffering. If you and I are faithful to follow Jesus, then we will face opposition. Because the Jesus way is not the way of the world. It's not the way of pride and self-accomplishment. It's not the way of self-satisfaction or self-fulfillment or self-exaltation. The Jesus way is the way of self-abandonment, of confession, of submission, of service. It's not the way of the masses. Thus, those who follow the Messiah encounter ridicule, oppression, and persecution. The Bible is clear on this. But as Christians living in the United States of America, we've been fortunate here. We have been fortunate to have been insulated from most of this, but far too many of our brothers and sisters in the faith have not been so fortunate. Many have been ostracized. Many have been imprisoned. Some even martyred. Unless we think this was only the case in the ancient world. I was reminded this past week that the 20th century lost more Christian martyrs around the world than any century before. So why do God's people suffer? At the hands of the wicked. Something they don't want to pretend to know fully this morning. It would be rather presumptuous of me. But the book of Revelation does give two reasons. Not simply here, but throughout the book. Two reasons why God often allows His people to suffer here on earth. At the hands of the wicked. And I want to mention these first. God's people suffer to provide evidence for God's condemnation of the wicked. To provide evidence of God's condemnation of the wicked. In other words, God delays His final judgment in order to provide the just condemnation of the wicked. We're not going to camp out here today because this theme will be developed more as we track through the book of Revelation. But suffice it to say, justice matters to God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is all about Uh, justice justice is at the heart of the gospel and because justice matters to God it must matter to his people and so here are these Christian martyrs verse 9 who followed the lamb they have followed Jesus even unto death to the point they've given their lives to remain faithful to Jesus Christ and they cry out for justice they say how long sovereign lord how long, so, how long, holy and true, and until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Judge the unbelievers here on the earth. A phrase that we find again and again in Revelation. The inhabitants of the earth. We're unbelievers, earth dwellers, those who don't know Christ, those who have not turned to Him in faith. And their cry resembles that of the psalmist. A number of times in the book of Psalms. One such example, Psalm 79, verse 10, a psalm that's credited to Asaph in the context of the particular psalm makes it sound as if uh, Israel has been under attack, Jerusalem has been sieged, the temple has been destroyed by a pagan army, a pagan peoples. The psalmist cries out, Psalm 79, verse 10, God, why should the nations say, where is their God? We've defeated them. Where's their God? Before our eyes make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. I don't think either of these are a call for personal vengeance, but a call for God to restore the reputation of His people for their reputation. The reputation of the people of God directly impacts God's reputation in the world. God's people suffer to provide evidence for God's condemnation of the wicked. And second reason we see here in Revelation is to prove their faithfulness and enter God's presence. 
to prove their faithfulness, the genuineness of their faith and devotion to Jesus Christ, to prove their faithfulness and enter God's presence, these martyrs have shown themselves faithful. And because they have, they are being rewarded by the Lamb. Robed in white, verse 11. Robed in white, because by faith they have been given Christ's righteousness. This is not a righteousness that they have achieved on their own. It's not a righteousness that any of us could achieve on our own. This is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's given to those who identify with Him, those who turn and trust in Him. Among these Christian martyrs are 30 Ethiopian Christians and 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians killed in 2015 by ISIS. In the words of one pastor, these are the saints who suffered Taliban atrocities in Afghanistan and the crackdown against Christians in Iraq. Some are martyrs from Nigeria slain by the ruthless Boko Haram. Many are victims of North Korea's brutal regime. Under the altar, there are new converts from Sri Lanka who were targeted just a few years ago and killed by radical Buddhists. Some of the praying saints here are from Saudi Arabia and Iran. There are Egyptian and Syrian believers who are praying, How long? How long, Sovereign Lord? How long? Friends, these are our brothers and sisters in the faith. These are folks for whom we must pray. The Scripture says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Believers take courage and persevere in the faith. Revelation is clear on this. Visions here that are given from God to John, from Christ to John. Call for believers, followers of the Lamb, people of faith, to take courage and persevere in the faith despite what pressures they may face or how things may appear here on earth. See, in a beautiful, tear-jerking sort of way, Revelation clearly paints a portrait of the redeemed having endured hardship here for a time before gathering around the throne of Jesus Christ and being graciously rewarded for their faith in the Lamb. Those who follow, follow the Lamb are faithful. Faithful even unto death. So believers, followers of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters in the faith, May we devote our time here to living and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. The text here suggests that the righteous, that those who trust Jesus, suffer for a season. Certainly some more than others. By and large, the norm is that they suffer for a season, but that season will soon fade away. But they're not the only ones to suffer. The text is clear. The scriptures are clear. This book is clear that the wicked also suffer. The wicked suffer. Unbelievers suffer. The wicked suffer. And with this, let's pick up the rest of the chapter. Verse 12. John writes, he says, I watched as the Lamb opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to the earth. as fig drops from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
For the great day of the wrath has come. And who can withstand it? Question that we'll pick up next week. The answer lies in chapter 7. But as the sixth seal is opened, John sees a cataclysmic event. A cataclysmic event portraying the, the universe coming apart at its seams. A preview, I think, of the final outpouring of God's wrath on the wicked. A preview that we see multiple times in Revelation. The wicked suffer, and we're told that they suffer as punishment. The wicked suffer as punishment. Verse 17, the great day of God's wrath has come, and who can withstand it? You see, God's wrath is both a present reality. It's a present reality as the world suffers from the consequences of sinning against the Holy God, but it is also an eschatological or end-time event. In the time of supposed tolerance and pluralism and progression and feel-good religion, there is little talk today of God's judgment. But God will judge the unrepentant. And He will avenge the blood of His martyred people in time. As one man put it, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is also the wrathful Lamb. He is the conqueror and judge who terrifies the unrepentant. He will not tolerate wickedness forever. He is a just God. He never wrongfully punishes, nor does He leave the guilty unpunished. The wicked suffer here in this life. And suffers as punishment that precedes eternal punishment. And so here we have a warning. A warning, a summons. A summons for unbelievers to repent. Wicked suffers, a summons to repent, a call to repent. The seven seals are the first of three series of seven judgments that are unpacked in the book of Revelation. And the first two of those, the seals as well as the trumpets that follow, have a pause, a distinct pause, a clear break before the sixth and the seventh event. An intervening delay suggesting God's merciful delay of the end. Meant to summon sinners to repent and embrace the one who suffered for us. Whereas they're meant to to display the message of Joel. In Joel chapter 2 verses 12 and following. Joel says, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Even now in your sin and your rebellion, turn to me. With all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and He relents from sending calamity. Who knows, He says, He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. A summons to repent. I shared with the early crowd that yesterday was... Intense day, part of the day at the Jones household. We had some family in town. What any family fighting? That was good uh, news. But there was a little household project that uh, was developed. My brother-in-law helped uh, me do some demo, some house demo, uh, to to take out a, a tub and a very small uh, little uh, partition wall, studs and sheetrock. Um, and um, I don't I don't know if you've ever done that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, it's loud and it's messy, but potentially therapeutic. And so if you've never tried it, it might be a good opportunity uh, for you. But I'll be honest, for just a little while, it was rather loud and it was rather messy. 
Um, and I really think if, if wall studs could talk to each other, uh, they were saying, brace yourselves. Uh, this might be the end. Get ready. Hunker down. And in a similar way, maybe not that similar, these warnings, these initial judgments that cycle through again and again in this life, recorded, portrayed in the book of Revelation, are meant as a summons to repent. They're meant as a warning. They're meant as a call to respond to the preliminary warnings of impending judgment and repent. Peter reminds us, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, believers. Do not forget, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you. The Lord is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, He says. The day of the Lord referenced the final coming of Christ and the outpouring of God's judgment. The day of the Lord will come, and it will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire in the earth, and everything done in it will be laid bare. For in sin and suffering abound, yet God is sovereign over suffering. He rules and He reigns and He delays His return, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So unbelievers repent before it's too late. Unbeliever. Wrestling with the truth of God's Word. Wrestling with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Wrestling with what you believe. The Scriptures call you. I would be unfaithful in not calling you based upon the message of God's Word today to repent. Repent before it's too late. Confess your sin before the Almighty God. Heed the warning. Confess your sin before God today and embrace Jesus. Stop running from God. Stop living for yourself. Run to Jesus. Receive His sacrifice of atonement, the gift of forgiveness, the cleansing of your sin. Live for Him. Live for Jesus Christ. Serve the One who came, serving you so that you might enjoy the hope of eternity, the joy of His presence. Worship the Lamb who took God's wrath so you and I would not have to. Repent. Repent. And then you too. And all those who know Christ will join those who rejoice. Those who rejoice over God's provision on the cross. Friends, may we be a people who rejoice because we know the God who provides. Because we know the sacrificial lamb. Because we know the sovereign God who holds all things in His hand. May we rejoice over God's provision on the cross. You see, John saw heaven rejoicing. He saw all heaven's inhabitants rejoicing for all those in heaven knew and knew the Lamb. They knew the Lamb looking as if He had been slain, yet standing at the center of God's throne. Friend, do you know the Lamb? Are you following the Lamb? Are you trusting the Lamb? And Father, may we trust You. May we be a people who Lay aside pride and self-centeredness and our own pursuits and attempts to be good enough or to be right with you. May we lay those aside. May we repent from the error of our ways and may we trust in Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb who gave his life for our sins. 
Father, we thank you for the joy of salvation. We thank you for the assurance that you are sovereign. That you are ruling and reigning on high and nothing will ultimately interfere with that. And Father, we thank you that even though we don't always understand your ways or your timing, that that you are trustworthy. May we trust you. Father, may we respond to the truth of your word. May we respond to the call to follow Christ. May we do so faithfully. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.